Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Synecdoche, New York, the new film and the first film directed by Charlie Kaufman. I'm here with Dan Coyce. Hi, Dan. Hey, how are you? Who in- instructed me to introduce him as some guy because I'm... he is now a freelance writer yep. associated loosely with the New York Magazine Vulture, Culture Vulture blog. So, yes, Dan, I didn't know you were in this movie with me yesterday, and I was very glad that you approached me after the end of this very, very strange and, and strangely involving and yet alienating film and said, hey, let's talk about it. So let's talk about it. We Indeed, we uh, walked all the way across Manhattan talking about it, and it's a movie that is both good and bad for talking about afterwards and that, as you said, I think, uh, you know, it, it does give you a lot to think about, but problematically, after you think about it for a while, you realize that most of the things you're thinking about are a little bit shallow and sophomoric. <laughs> yeah, but it's a very interesting effect this movie has on you because it is sort of in, in some way intellectually challenging and vibrant. Well, okay, to talk, to, to, to make sure people know why, why this is even worth saying, let's, let's start off with the, the title, Synecdoche, New York, a pun on the city name Schenectady, New York, where part of the movie takes place. Right. Can you read the definition of Synecdoche that you have before you sure. in the, in the movie's for, press th- notes? Thanks for the press notes, I know that synecdoche, pronounced synecdoche, it's a poetic term, a term used in poetry analysis frequently, but it's also in general a figure of speech in which a part is used to represent a whole. As in, one would say, uh, you know, instead of movies, the, the general concept of movies, you say the screen, the silver screen. Right. All hands on deck is the classic synecdoche right. example in, right. in rhetoric books. Right, exactly. Um, and in this case... I mean, the movie is full of synecdoches. It's about a a theater director named Caden Cotard, who is a respected but sort of career-stifled regional theater director in in Schenectady, New York. Isn't it Schenectady? And played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who in the middle of sort of a creative and personal crisis decides to create an enormous almost world-spanning theater project in an, in a huge like aircraft hangar or warehouse in the middle of Manhattan. Um, we should mention also that he gets a MacArthur Genius Grant fairly early in oh, the yes, movie, yes. so he's funded right. to do this. He's funded to do this theater project in which he attempts to basically recreate life, to recreate life as it is lived. Um, and so a, a smaller version of all the places that matter in his life are built in this aircraft hangar, and he hires actors to play everyone in his life, including eventually him himself and then recreates every sort of important thing or unimportant thing or horrible thing that's ever happened to him and to everyone he knows in over the course of I think maybe a 20 or 30 year theater project. Right. So that, so that the, the sort of timescape of the movie, I don't know how quite how to describe it. I mean, not just the time in which it takes place, but the psychological timescape of the movie is um, that we see him aging physically as his theater piece sort of pro- proliferates and gets larger and larger and more surreal and impossible and sort of becomes this microcosm of his world, right? right? So so that you as the viewer are also drawn into a strange fantasy space where you don't know what's real and what's imagined and how much time has passed at given periods. And the whole experience of seeing it is quite deliberately sort of alienating and disconcerting. It is. It's, it might be best described as a movie that takes place entirely within Charlie Kaufman's butt. <laughs> Um, because it is uh, the kind of movie that a, that a extremely ambitious and extremely self-possessed but also self-obsessed writer makes when he is given 
couple of scores of millions of dollars to make a movie. Which also means, of course, that, you know, the whole movie is an analogy for Charlie Kaufman's creative process. I mean, we okay, we have so many things to say about this movie, and a lot of them are going to be negative. So let's start off for poor Charlie's sake, because Charlie needs a hug. If there's one thing that's clear (laughs) from this movie is that Charlie Kaufman desperately needs a hug. So I can give him a few verbal hugs here and just say there are moments in this movie that are really profoundly moving and beautifully written. I mean, Charlie Kaufman, when he's on, I think can be an incredible writer. And Charlie Kaufman, in this movie, maybe more than any other movie, he does yield to his desires to write very explicitly, deeply emotional scenes. And in a lot of cases, those are very rewarding. I mean, it's hard for those not to be rewarding when they're written as beautifully as he writes them. And when you have people like Philip Seymour Hoffman or Samantha Morton or Catherine Keener saying those lines and acting those parts. Right. So it's a strange sort of movie in that it's not everything that we just described, including, you know, reading the definition of synecdoche from the press notes, sounds like it's going to be a very intellectualized and abstract experience to watch it. And it's really not. I mean, there's there are moments that it's, you know, profoundly unpleasant to watch, but not necessarily because it's intellectualizing. And we'll get into later, like what why it is such a drag by the end. And you're sort of praying and crying for it to be over. But <laughs> but there's these sort of Proustian, I mean, deliberately Proustian. In fact, Proust is referenced at one point. The, the Philip Seymour Hoffman character opens, remember, Numbers of things pass to the first page and starts reading it. But there's these kind of jumbled moments in time. I don't know how to describe them, but moments that we're sort of looking back on moments in the life of Philip Seymour Hoffman, which we might not know anything about. We don't even know necessarily the characters he's surrounded by, but these moments have a real poignancy and strength to them, especially all the ones involving his daughter. You agree, right? Everything yes, yes. that had to do with sort of his own lost childhood or his child's lost childhood, I thought was beautifully written. But, you know, these beautifully written islands sort of in, the, in this sea of, of other material just in the end are not enough. It's a movie that's that does sort of float by in a lot of ways with emotional scene after emotional scene. And you're right that it doesn't – even though you are trapped in Charlie Kaufman's head, it does not feel over-intellectualized. One of the reasons for that is that it's is that it is really chock full of really good actors. I mean even the tiny, tiny parts are um, being played by really excellent theater and film actors – who sometimes just fly by and you you I mean it, it, only later do you go oh yeah that was Hope Davis or oh that was Jennifer Jason Lee with a German accent for no reason or you know that's sometimes the actors are so big for the smallness of their part that you can't believe it was really them I actually didn't think Emily Watson was in the movie I thought well they just found someone who looks a lot like Emily Watson right some American but uh, you know no. it, and nobody could turn down a part in this movie and I I can see why because I I could imagine that the script although it doesn't work on the big screen could be really fascinating on paper it's full of ideas and it's all about what it is to be an actor. And, you know, there's some very juicy moments for, mm-hmm. for actors in there. No, it's, it is indeed Samantha Morton, finally someone – and I'll give this to Charlie Kaufman. He's finally someone who's taken advantage of the fact that no one can really tell apart Samantha Morton and Emily Watson because he has um, Emily Watson play the theatrical version of the Samantha Morton character in Caden Cotard's play within a movie. But, yeah, it's, it's a movie that, as we – said before. I mean, it sort of feels like something that where Charlie Kaufman was attempting to make his grand statement. This is a movie, the first movie he's been given the chance to direct. And it seems as though he wanted to stuff everything in it, including just huge chunks of sort of half digested, really good ideas that really could have stood to be chewed on and, and thought about or and 
written through a little bit more. Well, where do you want to go next? Because we could go down two roads. We could talk, talk about Kaufman, Kaufman as writer, Kaufman as director now for the first time, Kaufman as collaborator, which I want to get to, because I think he's so much better in that role. But then I also want to talk about what you described walking out of the movie about Beckett. What was your Samuel Beckett line? Oh, it said, this does feel like the kind of movie that Samuel Beckett would have made if someone had given him $40 million when he was 15. Right. Yeah. I love that line. And I think when he's 15 is kind of the key. I right. mean, you know, I think you're a theater nerd and I'm a you know literature nerd and we both are huge Beckett fans, but we both agree that you don't just wade into Beckett and, and do Beckett. It's just, it's very, very hard. No, and one lesson of Beckett should be that the, that the longer your attempt to create a Beckettian work, the worse it's going to be. Uh, as well, this is a strange combination of wanting to do sort of Beckett-style theater in mm-hmm. the sense that it's sort of a theater of the absurd and it's sort of about nothing and, you know, it's just basically sort of about one man's slow march toward death and so forth. But it also is trying to combine it with this really huge literary idea of kind of the total work of art, mm-hmm. right? I mean, clearly the theater piece that Caden Katard, Philip Seymour Hoffman is mounting is supposed to be this Wagnerian, you know, right. ultimate theater piece. It's a Gesamtkunstwerk right. that includes all other arts, and yet it's sort of impossible to ever finish or see. This sh- this supposed play is never shown to any audience. It just right. sort of becomes, you know, the work of his life. Right. It seems that at one point that the play becomes so large that it is uh, racked by revolution, as it seems, it seems like perhaps some of the other actors have revolted or attempted to escape. It ends uh, in tragedy not only for our main characters but for subsidiary characters whose bodies are seen littering the stage. Um, and all of this is sort of tossed off toward the end of the movie in, in its brutal last half hour. But I, I would like to talk a little bit more about the themes of this movie and how how much of a downer they are. Well, okay, truly, let's, let's, because... let's start as a keynote with the, the line that Catherine Keener says early on. We should we should note that she's playing his wife, Philip Seymour right. Hoffman's wife. They have a daughter together, and she's an artist, and the two of them have, uh, like a painter, and the two of them have been growing apart. The moment that she leaves him and packs her bags to take the kid to Berlin and never come back, she says this very depressing thing that you think that the rest of the movie will try to be a refutation of, uh, which is everyone's a disappointment once you get to know them. That's right. sort of her, her great comforting line as she's as she's leaving her mate. Everyone's a disappointment once you get to know them. And in a really depressing way, the movie seems to sort of bear that out. It does. I mean, and so it's two and a half hours of the life uh, of Caden Cattard, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, examined in in lush detail. And, and the more we see him and the more we learn about him, indeed, the more disappointing and the more depressing and the more uninteresting he becomes because it's the movie goes from his very, very specific experiences which holds some interest at the beginning of it to sort of a the vague generalities of of the end of life and and spoiler alert the movie ends with his death i mean the movie literally ends at the moment of his death with a white screen and as a defining theme for a movie about one man's life the notion that everyone is disappointing as you learn more about them is really sort of a cautionary should be a cautionary note to anyone who's thinking about plunking down 12 bucks for this movie. Yeah, I mean, far be it for me to demand uplift of a movie. I always hate it when people don't want to see a movie because it's, quote, too depressing, because, in other words, it shows some part of the negative experience of being alive. But this movie, I mean, even I found myself just saying, Charlie, Charlie, please give me something. Poor Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is so passive and so such a sort of schmo and so beaten down by life. And, you know, horrible things just continue to happen to him and happen to him. And, you know, just this this essentially the philosophy of the movie could be summed up as everyone's a disappointment once you get to know them, combined with some version of life's a bitch and then you die. Right. I mean, it should be noted that Caden Cotard is such a schlub that over the course of the movie, he is given the chance to sleep with Samantha Morton, Hope Davis 
and Emily Watson and either rejects them outright or cries all the way through, which I guess is maybe all you need to know about him <laughs> and how and how much it, it does make you feel as though Charlie Coffin really maybe Charlie Coffin just needs to, like, fall deeply in love and make that one movie or that one artwork that everyone makes when they're like stupidly happily in love just to get it out of his system. And then maybe that can inflect the rest of his work. Maybe that movie was Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Or maybe that was it was Gondry who brought the joy to the proceedings that that movie contained. But that's a great segue into the into the question of the the various Kaufmans. Okay, so I don't know about you. I mean, I think Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is basically a perfect kind of movie for the movie that it is. I don't think there's ever been a movie quite like it. And I still just sort of feel like I could watch any 15 minutes of that movie and just feel great and not because it's particularly uplifting actually it was also a very right. dark and sad movie in many right ways. but like but in fact no coffin movie up till now and that's includes adaptation human nature eternal sunshine and and being john malkovich and being john malkovich none of them have been particularly uplifting but in each case coffin has been forced either by budgetary concerns or or just or by studios or by his own decision to collaborate with others not only on the filming of the movie in, in the sense that other people directed them, but in all those cases, those screenplays were developed alongside his directors of choice, alongside Gondry with Eternal Sunshine and Human Nature, and alongside Spike Jones with Adaptation and Being John Malkovich. And, and in those cases, one of the things that those people added in spades was levity, was not only jokes in the play and in, in the scripts, but visual levity and and scenic levity in in that each scene did not feel as it does in Synecdoche, New York, as just another step on the long, slow, <laughs> horrible road to death. You're beating the table here in the studio, yes. I must point and, out, and as, I mean, you, as you plod along right, with Philip Seymour. Right, and, and there, there are precious few moments of, of even glimmerings of joy and happiness and beauty in this movie, even despite the fact that this is a movie that should yield, that could yield enormous moments of surprise like visual surprise or 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 visual delicacy in that it is it is boxes within boxes and chambers within chambers and there are many chances for even just visual jokes of the type that would really make this movie feel less like a, feel less like a slog and it certainly does not give me the sense that Charlie Kaufman is a natural director he certainly is a good director of actors but he's not a naturally visual guy he thinks in great ideas and he can think in great images but in realizing those images to the screen he has none of the sort of verve or excitement of a Gondry or of Spike Jones. Yeah, that's why I feel like, and I feel bad saying it because I was excited that he was directing a movie, and it's it would be fine if he had a different voice from Jones and Gondry. But I feel like he needs that that shaping, collaborating force. And in my mind, it should be Gondry because I think Human Nature and Eternal Sunshine are the two most successful movies that he's written. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I hope that this doesn't end his career. We were talking about that as, as well, and I certainly hope he gets to go on writing. But I, I could certainly live with the fact that Charlie Kaufman never got to direct another movie yeah. again. I, he certainly will be. He certainly will be writing movies for the rest of his. Life because even the bad parts of this movie suggest that there are great movies that he will still write, just as he has written great movies already. But yes, I don't, I don't see anyone handing him a lot of money to direct a movie ever again. Oh, poor Charlie. Poor Charlie. Oh, we love you, Someone, Charlie. Keep on going. Keep right, on writing. Right, wherever Charlie Kaufman is, if you're standing right next to him right now, if you're listening to this podcast and, and you're on the subway and you see Charlie Kaufman standing next to you, give him a hug. I think you would appreciate it. And send him more love. All right. Well, Dan, thanks a lot for uh, popping up and tapping me on the shoulder after this movie. And thanks for taping the podcast. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm Dan Coyce, playing Dana Stevens in a play based on our life.